Here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to get into the Bible. So if you guys wouldn't mind, open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 4. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we are in about week 16 of this great book. And uh, what we're going to be looking at here today is actually a great story. It's a story that uh, if any of you were actually brought up in the church or have any type of background in Christianity whatsoever or felt boards, um, you would have seen this you would have seen this story, you would have heard this story, it's a story really in short about Jesus and his disciples that are in the middle of a storm, that's a life-threatening storm, and Jesus calms the storm. That's the story that we'll be taking a look at. What I want to do is we're going to pray, and then we're going to get to begin to take a look at this great story, and hopefully God will begin to speak to our hearts today about something really important for us to ponder and consider. So, Father, we ask you right now that you would just come into this place, open our eyes, open our hearts. God, I pray that you would help us just to be humbled before you, to recognize that you are a God that is both powerful, but also equally loving. So, Lord, we ask you right now that you would just open our eyes, help us to see, God, more importantly, to respond. God, that your word would actually bring about a radical effect and change upon our hearts, and we I would ask, God, that you would do this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. All right. So what we're going to basically do right now is I'm going to read the story. And uh, some of you, again, like I said, are probably all familiar with the story. Um, even some of you that might not even been brought up in a Christian home, uh, you may have heard this story before. So for some of you, it might be a little bit of a, bit of a review. Uh, for the rest of you, maybe it might be a little bit of a new spin on an old story that you've been familiar with. And I pray that God speaks to us today. So it goes like this. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, it's Jesus, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. And just as he and the other boats were there with them, a great windstorm arose, and the waves breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he said... And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Why do you still not have any faith? And they were filled with even greater fear. And they said to one another, Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? So in short, this is kind of a unique story that Mark's emphasizing, and Mark is trying to portray and point out to us. I think in short, if I really want to try to jump immediately to kind of the practical application of this and really trying to ask myself, why would Mark add this story? What's his goal in trying to add this little story? And again, the Gospel of Mark is basically a collection of stories. It's Mark's account of Jesus' life. He calls it a gospel. In other words, it's the retelling, the gospeling, the story of what Jesus had done. Mark starts out the entire gospel, his entire narrative, entire story, uh, emphasizing the king nature of Jesus. In other words, He's not just a guy who came into this earth and became God, but that he is God who came into this earth and added to his divinity humanity. It's important for you to know that, that this is not a human who added to his humanity divinity, but like the church father Augustine said, this is divinity that added to his nature humanity, that Jesus became a man, but that this man, Jesus, this God-man, is actually the king. He's the true king that's come to restore and redeem and restructure and reorder everything that's been broken. And we know that. We live in a world that's broken. Jesus, according to Mark, is that Jesus is launching this project of restoration. And he's doing this because he's the king. And he has the rightful claim to kingship. And so what Mark's going to do is going to point out various elements about Jesus' life and who he is and what he's done and how he's acted. So he's going to portray various elements of what Jesus has and how he's able to do this. One of the things that we'll begin to take a look at more so than anything else today in the story of Jesus is that he has his power. But again, if I'm trying to ask myself, why would Mark add this story? What is he trying to accomplish? Is he just wanting for us to stand in awe of the fact that Jesus is all-powerful? I don't think that's the main point. I think what Mark is really wanting for us to see and why he probably selected this story out of you know perhaps hundreds of stories to choose from from the life of Jesus is because I think Mark wants us to understand something. That it's possible as disciples or as followers of Jesus to actually find peace and calm 
even in the midst of great storms. I think that's what he's trying to go with all of this. I think that's what he wants for us to see, is that just like the disciples were caught or trapped in this overwhelming storm, this unmanageable storm, they had no power compared to it. And in a lot of ways, they were just simply at the mercy of the storm, that somehow Jesus, through the midst of the storm, not only calms the storm, but also creates and rebukes them for their lack of confidence and trust in him. So in other words, I think it can be said like this. Where Mark's trying to go with this whole story is that if we know who Jesus is, if we truly understand the whole point of what Mark is trying to point us to with regard to Jesus, that there is a possibility, there's a way for us to go through life's storms, life's difficulties, that are very unmanageable for us, to actually come out full of peace and joy. Rather than being ravaged, rather than being destroyed, rather than being overcome by these storms, we can actually overcome them. I think, really in short, that's the practical basis of which Mark is really trying to establish here with regard to this whole story. But in order to get to the practical element of where Mark's trying to go with this story, we have to first tackle some two, at least two, major theological understandings of who Jesus is. In other words, the practical basis for our confidence and peace in the middle of storms is not thinking good. It's not somehow the way that we make ourselves feel better about bad circumstances or adverse circumstances, but that our peace in the storms of life are only rooted and grounded in two massive theological understandings of who Jesus is. So in other words, to get to the practical element of peace in the storm, you have to first deal with these two radically huge theological, and here's another big word for you, Christological concepts that Mark wants for us to tackle. The word Christological is just a theological term that means Christ-centered, Christ-study. It's the study of Christ. That's really what he's trying to emphasize, is that we have to look to Jesus, we have to know something about Jesus in order for us to have the peace that Jesus really is rebuking the disciples for not having the Peace that the peace that Jesus really wants us to have in the middle of storms. So with that being said, what I want to try to do is I want to begin to take a look at this. So the question can be summarized like this. How can we be at rest in the middle of these storms? How can we find rest in the middle of these difficulties and hardships in life? How can we do that? Well, with that, there's at least two things that we need to know. One, we need to know and we need to see that Jesus is the all-powerful creator. This seems to be evident in Mark's whole account of the life of Jesus. We need to first of all see that Jesus is the powerful creator that he is. And this becomes pretty evident throughout the story that there's something unique about Jesus. There's something very powerful that he wants us to understand about him. And what he does is going to basically, in some ways, in fact, you can look at this, and at least the way, here's how we're going to sort of dissect it or try to exegete this text and try to understand it, all right? What I want to try to do is kind of give you a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe a syllogism, all right? That basically just means here's some facts about Jesus, here's some facts about the circumstances, and therefore because of these facts, this is who Jesus is. Here's the way I put it. One, that a powerful and unmanageable storm threatens the lives of the disciples. We'll look at that in a second here. Secondly, that Jesus speaks, commanding the powerful, unmanageable storm to be still. Thirdly, Jesus' words actually have power over the storm so that the storm is stilled. Therefore, all right, or equals, everything is pointed to this, that therefore Jesus is therefore more powerful and unmanageable than a storm itself. I think this is what Mark's trying to say, and hopefully some of this might make sense to you. So we'll kind of break this down for you guys so it all makes sense. So the first thing is this, is really this whole sense of this powerful and unmanageable storm threatens the lives of the disciples. All right, so... In short, it goes like this. The disciples get into a boat with Jesus. Jesus says, let's go into a boat and go to the other side. It's important to note that most Jews, for the most part, the Hebrew people were not really a seafaring group of people, other than the fact that a handful of them were fishermen. They weren't adventurers. They weren't people that built these big, massive ships and went out on the open waters and went and you know, visited brand new lands. They, just, they weren't like that, at least according to the history books that we know. There's not much of an evidence that this is the way that the Jewish people were. Other than the fact that most Jews, or a lot of the Jews that lived around bodies of water, they were fishermen. So there was some degree to which they were familiar, familiar with the seas or the oceans. In this case, they lived by the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was about 700 feet below sea level. So it was kind of situated in a place, it's kind of upriver, if you will, from the Dead Sea. 
And back in Jesus' day, it would have been a whole lot larger than it was today. If you go to the Sea of Galilee today, in fact, um, I've been there several times. Uh, one of the very first things I discovered when I first went to the Sea of Galilee, I was amazed as to how big it was. It's actually a very large sea. In my mind, I kind of thought, if you're from Orange County or Southern California, I thought it was like Lake Elsinore, right? You guys know what Lake Elsinore is? It's like a pond. That's very nasty. And so um, the point of the matter is, in my mind, originally, I thought it was like, you know, like a Lake Elsinore. It's not like a Lake Elsinore. It's very large, very large. In fact, there's parts that are around 20 miles wide at, at its largest area. In fact, again, it probably would have even been larger back in Jesus' day. So that being said, is that this was a very large sea, that in the middle of the night, you can be lost in this. And there were sort of these... Uh, uh, because of the elevation, because of the way that it was situated there on the land geographically, there were times that they would sort of immediately, these storms would pick up. And that was one of the things that I noticed when I was there on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we went there during the summer, so we got to go swimming in the Sea of Galilee. It was beautiful. But there was a couple nights that it immediately got very windy, very quickly. And the winds picked up, and not like, not like they were like waves that you can surf on or anything, but the fact of the matter is, is that it got very rough and very disturbed very quickly. And so... For the most part, Jews had a great respect for the water. In fact, according to a lot of Jewish uh, metaphor and Jewish idiom, you'll kind of discover that throughout Jewish writings, they actually viewed the ocean or the sea as not really a place that was, for the most part, safe. It was this untamable type of entity. It was very impersonal. In a lot of ways, it was viewed as sort of the place of death. In a lot of ways, the concept of the sea kind of symbolized everything that was dark and evil and that threatened God's good purposes against God's people and against God's good creation. That that's what the sea sort of embodied. And this picks up, or this kind of plays into various passages throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament. I'll give you an example. When Daniel has this great vision, he sees this beast arise. Out of where? The sea. In the book of Revelation, John has this vision or this picture. He has this dream, whatever it is. He sees something, and the beast or the Antichrist arises out of where? The sea. And there's a passage in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, where God says, after God restores and repairs and redeems all things, he says, and I looked, and there was no sea. Now, that really bothered me at first when I became a Christian because I like to surf. I love the ocean. There's something beautiful about the ocean that we love. And when I heard that there's no more sea, I thought, that's horrible. How can there be a heaven without ocean or a sea? I mean, I love the sea. That's one of the reasons why a lot of us moved to the Central Coast, because we want to be near the sea. I grew up in Huntington Beach. I grew up by the sea. That was my life. I always spent all the time by the sea. But the concept of the sea into a Hebrew mind was this place that was threatening. It was unmanageable. It was very destructive. And if you weren't careful, it became your grave. And it was the place that sort of birthed all of this dangerous kickback against God's good creation. So when John the Apostle says, and I saw, and there was no more sea, that was his beautiful way, poet, poetic way of saying, anything that has ever threatened God's good creation will no longer exist. It'll be totally gone. So I find great hope in that. I love that interpretation because it at least allows me to have hope that there will be some sort of body of water somewhere in the new heavens and new earth. So the point of the matter that I'm trying to make is this, is that the Jews, for the most part, feared the sea. They revered the sea. You see even this throughout all sorts of ancient pagan religions. One of the reasons why people would make gods or demigods is because they would make these gods based upon the things that they feared. The sea was always this thing that people feared. So therefore, they would make gods that were associated to the sea, and they would worship these gods, and they would pay homage to these gods, and they would give sacrifices to these gods because they didn't understand it. They were afraid of it, and therefore they thought if they offered sacrifices to it, then it somehow would protect them as they were out on the ship or somehow as they were out on the ocean fishing or traveling and doing whatever they would do. But all I'm trying to say is this, is that first of all, we see that there was a powerful and unmanageable storm that threatened the lives of the disciples. So in verses 35 to 38, we see the disciples are on this little boat, all right, um, and I actually had a picture, I'm not sure how it didn't end up in my slides, because I forgot to put it in there, but it was a picture of a boat, so sometimes you might think of these little ships or the boat that they were on, don't think of this big massive ship, all right, you know, lower deck, upper deck, you know, jacuzzi on board, it was not like that, they were just like little ships that would sometimes maybe hold upwards of 15 people, if that, they were these tiny little seafaring, you know, 
boats that just weren't very, they weren't made for big, massive storms. So here the disciples go out on this boat with Jesus, and all of a sudden this massive, unmanageable storm uh, arise, arises, and it threatens their very lives. It must have been very big, it must have been very severe to take some of these weathered fishermen who grew up on the Sea of Galilee to actually feel like they're going to die. So that's what's going on. So first of all, we see uh, this all-powerful, unmanageable storm that threatens their lives. Secondly, we see that Jesus commands this all-powerful and unmanageable storm to be still. I find this amazing. Take a look at verse 39. Here's what he says. He says, And then he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. What's amazing to me about this is that Jesus does not call upon any higher power. He's not like raising a wand and creating some sort of incantation. He's not divining anything. He's not calling upon another you know, being to say, in the name of blah, 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 I command you, peace be still. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus rises up from his position where he's sleeping, more about that in a second, and he commands the storm. He says, peace, be still. In short, there's a lot of different versions of this, a lot of different translations, because this phrase can be translated in a lot of different ways, and basically, some of the best ones that I've seen is just, peace, don't talk. Peace, be quiet. It's almost like what Jesus is doing is he's using a phrase that an adult would typically use towards a child. But here's Jesus standing up, looking to a storm, looking to a hurricane, and says, peace, be still, or shut up and be quiet, and don't talk again. And then all of a sudden, I mean, if that's not weird enough, Jesus is talking to a hurricane. That's nutty. That's really crazy. But here's what Jesus does. After speaking to this hurricane, the third thing is that we see ultimately it stops. It does exactly what Jesus says for it to do. And it's as if Jesus is not just simply saying, look at me, I'm someone of great power. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am power. I'm not someone that possesses power. I am the embodiment of power. And that's radically distinct for many of us in this room. Because some of you may think you're strong. Some of you may look at your lives and feel as if you have some sort of strength. Really what Jesus is saying is that I am, I am power. And anybody that ever has power, it's delegated power. It's power on loan. Some of you need to know this. Especially some of you men, you need to know this. That any power, any authority you have, it's on loan. You're not the author of it. You, don't, you can't make any claim to it. It's been gifted to you. It's a delegated gift from God to you because he is power incarnate. That's what Jesus is saying. And by speaking to the storm, he's doing what, what is just absolutely ridiculous in any normal circumstance. You don't stand up in front of a hurricane and start talking to it. But that's what Jesus does. Why? I think what he's doing very clearly is this action harkens back to Genesis chapter 1. Where in the beginning, God spoke. Things happened. And what Jesus is really trying to emphasize here, and what I think Mark's trying to highlight for us that's reading this story, is that this is not just some guy who claims to be God or some guy who has power from God, but that this is God himself who speaks and when he speaks, things happen. His word has its power. It is power. This is amazing what Mark wants us to see. So thirdly, we see that the powerful and unmanageable storm becomes still. I love this in verse 39. It says, and it became calm or became still. The word became calm, literally in the Greek, it's mega calm. Mega, like super calm. All right. What I love about this is Mark's detailing for us just a little bit of a, a, a whole scenario that took place here. So, in other words, Jesus speaks, and it's not as if the, 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 the waves stop or the winds just stop automatically. I mean, I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, I was down in Costa Rica. In the first few days that I was down there surfing, uh, that's all I was doing. Uh, you're like, oh, it was a missionary trip. No, it was just surfing. That's all, all right? <laughs> um, that's all I was doing, surfing. And, and um, and so the first few days, every single day, it was just straight offshore winds. Like offshore, they blow from the shore onto the ocean, and it creates nice, big, round, circular, cylinder-like 
barrels. And what happens is if, if, if the wind blows too strong, it, it kind of blows, it was blowing it back out into the ocean. But these were gusts of wind. And it would typically, and I, you know, we were out there for quite a long time, and you kind of typically got into this rhythm. You realize for about 10 minutes, the offshore winds would blow very strong, and for about another 10 minutes to 20 minutes, it would be completely calm and still. And so if I, you know, got my rhythm right, and if I had my timing perfect, I can say, peace be still, and all of a sudden, the winds would stop, right? And, but that was just a fluke. That was a happenstance. It really just, nothing really changed. It was just so happened to be that when I said that at that moment, that could have been what happened. But someone can say, well, this is what happened with Jesus. He just spoke, and all of a sudden, the storm stopped blowing at that just very moment, and all things were fine. But that's not what Mark tells us. What Mark tells us is that the moment Jesus said that, everything became mega calm. The water became like glass. Now, if you've ever grown up on the ocean or been in the ocean, you know that you can be there and you can watch the ocean being blown by the wind. And even if the wind stops blowing, there'll still be turbulence in the ocean. There'll still be texture on the ocean. It'll still be there. It takes a while. Sometimes it takes hours for the ocean to be completely dead calm and dead still. But with this miracle, this is exactly what happened. Instantaneously, Jesus opens his mouth, speaks, the storm stops, and immediately the ocean becomes this dead calm. Mega calm is what Mark wants us to see. So the fourth thing that we see is that Jesus must be more powerful and much more unmanageable than the storm, which this basically leads us now to the second thing that I want for us to understand that Mark wants us to see, is that secondly, not only first of all, we need to see that Jesus is this all-powerful creator. But again, remember where Mark is taking us. He wants us to be able to have peace in the middle of the storm. So let me say this. I don't know about you, but simply being in the presence of something that is all-powerful does not bring peace to my heart. It doesn't. Because think about it this way. If you're in the middle of something or in the midst of something that is all-powerful, but it's completely unmanageable, there's no moral good about it, there's no agency with regard to it that has your best interests in mind, then what could possibly and potentially happen is that you could be threatened. Your life could be threatened. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think we love, you know, like X Games or why some people are into roller coasters is because we, we love to harness that raw power, but that raw power is on a track, right? Or if you surf, like you surf certain big waves, but you're not going to go beyond certain other bigger waves. But, or we, we love things that have power, but power that's constrained, power that's contained. And, and there is a sense of peace about that. But simply being in the presence of unmanageable power, infinite power, doesn't bring our hearts peace and rest. Scares us. Terrifies us. What actually brings our heart peace and rest is knowing that that power also wishes our good. And here's what happens next is that Mark wants us to see there's at least three things that happen in this story that he wants us to understand that Jesus is not just simply this all-powerful creator, but he's also a loving deliverer, and he's at work. He's doing something. That as a king, he has all power, but as a savior, he truly loves us. And the first thing he wants us to see is that, again, to some degree, um, I'm making some practical application on this, but I want for us to understand, to some degree, the practical application that we're sort of drawing from the text has to do with us sitting back kind of as observers, meaning we're not the ones getting rebuked, per se, in the story, all right? We're watching the disciples get rebuked, and if we're smart, like, like you can learn the same lesson that you're watching them get rebuked for. You understand what I'm saying? Like, maybe you grew up and you had, like, an, a younger brother or older sibling, and, like, you saw them get in trouble, and you were the smart kid, and you're like, I learned from that. You know, I saw my kid brother get, you know, busted for doing something stupid. And so I learned from that, and I chose not to do that because I didn't want to get busted just like, you know, younger kid brother. And so we can learn from that, and that's, that's what I'm suggesting here, is that when we watch what's happening or transpiring in the story, the first thing that we notice is that their unbelief, uh, the disciples' unbelief gets rebuked. And so here's what we see. So what takes place, they go on and they say to Jesus, they say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? In verse uh, 38, in verse 39, he goes on and says, and he woke and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you no, still no faith? So here's what's, what's amazing to me. 
is they basically said, Jesus, if you loved us, you wouldn't have allowed us to go through this storm. And for some of us, that's, this, this story really hits home because this is the story of our life. This is maybe the story where some of you are at right now because you're going through circumstances in your life currently, presently right now where you just can't understand them, you can't figure them out. You feel as if you're being tossed and destroyed and torn and broken by the storms of these lives. And there's been this thought, this ongoing thought in your mind that's constantly causing you to wonder, okay, if God loved me, then why would these things happen? If God really truly cared for me, why wouldn't he intervene? If God truly sought my good, then why has he not done something? Why is he, why have these things just continued to progress and nothing has changed? Maybe that's where some of you are at today. It's one of the reasons why the question of the disciples is so poignant to us, and it totally hits home for all of us. Because we can relate to it. So they come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, if you really cared for us, don't you care that we're perishing? This is amazing to me. Because Jesus is literally in the boat, Mark tells us, taking a nap. And not only that, he's on a cushion taking a nap. All right? This to me is just like one of those like superfluous details of the story. Where if this was a false story, in other words, if someone's just making this whole story up, this is an additional detail that does not need to be added in the story, right? You know, there are people that come along every once in a while, every generation, they're like, we know the Bible's not true. We know the Bible's not true. Why? Because miracles don't happen. Dead people don't rise from the dead. Storms don't get, don't get calm. But then you read a story like this and you begin to realize, like, wh- why, why would Mark write about a pillow being in the stern of the boat and Jesus laying against the pillow. Why? That has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with the story. Because it's a memory. That's why. It's a memory. It's an event. It absolutely actually happened. No one would add a detail like that unless it actually happened. So here's Jesus sleeping in the boat and they come to him like, Jesus, we thought you cared for us. We thought you loved us. We thought you we're going to, we thought that you were going to take care of us and watch over us, but here we are, we're perishing, we're dying, and you're doing nothing, you're sleeping, and you don't care about us. And so in other words, what Jesus does is he stands up right there, he rebukes the storm, and then he turns to the disciples and rebukes them. He rebukes their unbelief. This is amazing to me, because Jesus stands up after rebuking the storm, peace be still, right? Then he turns to the disciples, and I love what he doesn't do. He doesn't be like, all right, guys, group hug. I know it's tough. I know it's hard. All right, let me pat you on the back. All right, you guys deserve a hug. I know life's tough. It's difficult. I know what you're going through. He doesn't do that. He totally rebukes the wind and the waves, and it listens to him. And then he turns to them, and he rebukes them. He's like, you don't get it, do you? You come to me and you challenge me about my love for you, and you basically come to you on this premise by saying, if you loved us, Jesus, we thought that if you loved us, you would not allow us to go through these problems, these storms, these life difficulties. And here's what Jesus, in essence, says. Then you don't understand me. You just don't know me yet, do you? You don't know the fact that people whom I love can also be the very same people that go through suffering. And they're completely protected and covered by me. You don't know that story about me yet. This is absolutely amazing for us to understand this. Because really, at the end of the day, this absolutely devastates these guys. They don't get it. Their assumptions of Jesus are completely all wrong. They don't understand the fact how that, if God really loved them, how that he could also allow them to go through such suffering and pain in this life. But here's what he wants them to understand, is that your assumptions about me are false. And you need to see me clearly. Their unbelief gets rebuked. You need to know this. That usually the fears that we have in this life and the anxieties that drive us aren't just sort of dysfunctions that need to be coddled and taken care of. They're actually sins that need to be rebuked. It is. It's disbelief. It's always rooted in disbelief. All the time. 
And we live in a culture that just doesn't like that. We want someone to hug us. We want someone to care for us. And to some degree, there's elements where that's good, it's helpful, but at the end of the day, what you need to understand is that Jesus comes to his disciples, he doesn't hug them, he rebukes them and says, you guys are completely misunderstanding who I am, that I am a God that can not only love, but that can also lead the people whom I love through the storms. The second thing that we see with regard to this is not only their unbelief gets rebuked, the second thing is we see that their fears get reordered. This is really important because really one of the interesting ironies in the story that I kind of find is that at the beginning of the storm, these guys come to Jesus and they're absolutely full of fear. Then they come to Jesus. Jesus stands up, rebukes the storm, and after Jesus rebukes the storm, he turns to them and says, how come you guys don't trust me yet? Don't you know who I am yet? And what happens after that, these guys are not just fearful of the storm. They're absolutely terrified. That's the irony of this whole story. They go from being afraid of the storm to being absolutely terrified of Jesus. It's amazing to me, right? I, I, I read this, and I'm just blown away by the fact that this is what happens. This is the story of this, what, what Mark's trying to identify here. And what's going on here that I think he's trying to emphasize is that in the middle of the storm, they realize their fear was the result of, they had no control of this storm. It was completely unmanageable. They were completely powerless up against this big, massive storm. But what happens is Jesus comes on the scene. He speaks in this unmanageable storm to them, becomes completely managed, becomes completely calm, and now they're face-to-face with Jesus, who is his ultimate, infinite power, who himself is more powerful than the storm that was unmanageable to them. That means that Jesus is completely unmanageable to them. That freaks and terrifies them beyond measure begin to realize that who are you and that's the question that mark wants us to wrestle with who is jesus what is he all about see this is one of the crazy things because if god is powerful and loving enough to allow us to go through these storms then he must also have reasons for us in the middle of the storms that we'll never fully understand Isn't that true? Let me say that again. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, then would not that also mean that he also has reasons that are way beyond our understanding, way beyond our finding out as to why he allows us to go through these storms? Because the bottom line is this, is that he is either all-powerful or all-loving, or he's not. And if he's not any of these things, then really all we're simply left with is the storm. So some of you might be like, well, what's the difference then? Being in the hands of a storm that's all-powerful and unmanageable or being in the hands of Jesus that's all-powerful and all-unmanageable. The difference is this. Storms don't love you. Jesus does. Some of you here today might be like, I don't believe in Jesus. Let me, let, me, let me say something very clearly and just try to help you walk through this at least in a logical way to think about this. Because some of you might be like, well, I'm not in a storm. The fact of the matter is that all of you are in a storm. All of us. We're all in a storm. We call it life. All right? Life. We're all in a storm. The fact of the matter is, is that all of us in this life, throughout this life, are in a storm. And the storm will ultimately lead to our death. We will all die. For some of us, it's faster more fast-paced, the older we get, the more momentum we begin to pick up, the more we begin to realize we're headed faster, closer to death. The younger we are, the more blind we are to the fact that that might actually be possible or plausible. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are all in this path, this trajectory that's heading towards death, heading towards this storm that none of us will have control over. It will be completely unmanageable. And the fact of the matter is, is that all of us are in the storm. And we will all be overtaken by some of us, like I said, sooner than others. Some of us may be in more unexpected ways than others. It might be through you know, an earthquake, fire. It might be through tsunami, something like that. But the fact of the matter is, is that nature at best is untamable. At worst, it's vicious. And you say it's not safe. Nothing's safe. The fact of the matter is, is neither is God. But, but, the point that Mark's trying to point out is that he alone is good. 
Storms are impersonal. They have no feelings. They have no care. They have no consideration. And all of you are in it. But if you entrust yourself to the God of the storm, who is greater than the storm, who has greater power than the storm, then at least you can have some level of confidence of knowing that he has you held up in the middle of that storm. There's a uh, section out of C.S. Lewis's book, and I'll just read it to you. It's kind of a little dialogue that's going on between Mrs. Beaver and Lucy and Mr. Beaver. I'll just read it to you. I love this little passage here, and this might hopefully kind of catch the glimpse of where I'm going. So yes, you're welcome. You get a Chronicles of Narnia quote. So here you go. Mrs. Beaver basically says this. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else simply silly. Then Lucy says, then isn't he safe? No, she's sorry. Totally botched that. I'll back up. All right. That's why I'm not an actor. All right. Here's what Lucy says. <laughs> Lucy says, then he isn't safe. Question. He isn't safe. And here's what Mr. Beaver says. Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's king, I tell you. That is the picture the Bible portrays of Jesus. Safe? No one, no one can say that Jesus is safe. The bottom line is, is that you look at Jesus, you follow Jesus, you have a guarantee your life is going to be safe? I mean, what about people in this life that love Jesus, that have been faithfully committed to Jesus, that have a child die to cancer, or have a loved one die in a car accident? You think that Jesus is safe? No, but what happens is that, again, all you're simply left with are the natural, raw, impersonal, dangerous terrifying elements that affect every one of us or you can submit yourself to the king who is more powerful than those elements and ultimately is motivated by a heart of love to the midst of all those elements that's the point he's not safe but he's good and that's his whole point there's a passage or a line out of a song that most of us have sung so many times probably most of us i know at least i haven't seen this verse until recently it's out of uh, John Newton's song, Amazing Grace. Listen to this phrase, and this hopefully captures, captures the idea of that their fears ultimately get reordered. Here's what I mean. Here's what John Newton says. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." What does that mean? What does it mean by John Newton when he says, it's grace, God's grace taught my heart to be afraid? Here's the problem that all of us face. All of us are afraid of something. Some of you, it's afraid of being powerless. So you get all machismo, you throw your swagger on, ratchet up your bravado, and you act like you're strong because you're afraid, deathly afraid of being weak. For some of you, you're afraid of being lonely. So you're afraid that you'll never get married. You're afraid that you'll never have children. You're afraid. You're afraid of that. For some of you, you're afraid of debt. And so therefore you hoard it, you protect it. That is what has power over you. For others, it's afraid of, of sickness. It's death, afraid of death. All of us have fears that afflict us and destroy us and control us. But what the gospel does, actually, is it reorders our fears, rightly orders our fears. The problem you have in your life with fears is that your fears are disproportionately out of order. You are afraid of the wrong things. What Jesus does on the boat in front of his disciples is by grace, he teaches their hearts to fear rightly, to fear him. We hate talking about fear because we, we live in a culture where we just want everything to be chummy. We want to treat Jesus like he's our best friend. And there are definite elements in which we have to see that Jesus is personal. But First, before we get to the personalness of who Jesus is, we have to realize he's a king that has all power over all things. And then what he can say to us, the way he says to all other people who approach him on this basis, don't be afraid. You don't need to fear me. Why? Because I'm good. That's the point. By grace, he reorders our fears. Maybe that's what Jesus needs to do in your life, to reorder your fears. You're afraid of the wrong things, and they have become 
that you become a slave to it. You're under its control. And the final thing I want to finish with this is that we need to see Jesus really as a loving deliverer. Not only uh, the way he does this is by rebuking their unbelief, by reordering their fears, but then finally we see that everything gets redirected to the cross. And some of you might be kind of like, how is this story even hint at the cross? How does it portray the cross? And I'll tell you, the way that John or the way that Mark writes this is actually very unique. In fact, most scholars would all agree that what Mark's doing here is again he he wrote this book years after Jesus died and rose again from the dead. So um, in, in telling the story, the people in the story, the characters in the story, meaning the disciples, they probably wouldn't have like, picked up on this and been like, oh, I get it, it all makes sense. But later when Mark retells the story, Mark actually uses language to kind of cause a person's mind, a reader's mind, to go back to another Old Testament passage to remind them of something that Jesus was about to do. And most scholars all would agree that the story that, we're, that we just read actually has an Old Testament counterpart in the story of Jonah. It's amazing. I'll give you some examples of this. Um, Because, for example, in the book of Matthew, Jesus actually comes on the scene, and he basically says, one who is greater than Jonah is here. In fact, Matthew records for us that Jesus is actually the greater than Jonah. And so what really I think Mark's trying to do is he's trying to write in such a way that would cause the readers to hearken back to this Old Testament story of Jonah, which ultimately pushes forward back to Jesus, who's the fulfillment of Jonah. So here's some examples of how this all works out. For example, both were in a boat. Pretty obvious. Both were in a boat. Jonah was in a boat. Jesus was in a boat. Secondly, in the description of of the storm, we were very, very identical. Secondly, we see that Jesus and Jonah were both asleep. They're both taking naps in the boat. Thirdly, we see that both stories, uh, the sailors woke up and the sleeper, they, they basically came in and says, we're going to die. They actually, in the Greek, they use the exact same language. So Mark actually borrows from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he uses the exact same language. Why? Because I think what Mark's doing is he's intentionally pointing to the story of Jonah to say that's what's happening in the story. So they come to Jesus and like, we're going to die. Same words that are basically used there. Fourth thing, we see that in both stories, there was a miraculous divine intervention. And ultimately, immediately, as soon as God intervened, the sea was calm. Both stories. And then we also go on to see that the sailors become even more terrified after the sea's calmed. Both stories. People on this boat, Jesus' disciples, they're even more terrified after the sea's calm. The story of Jonah, as soon as the sea's calm, they're more terrified than when the storm was actually happening. Now, both of these stories are identical in all instances except one that you can maybe look at casually and be like, well, wait a minute. In the story of Jonah, Jonah was pushed off the boat because he basically comes to the sailors and they're like, look, you guys, in order for you to survive this storm, uh, you have to push me off the boat in order for you to live. And so they're like, okay, great, walk the plank. And as soon as they push him off the boat. He survived. So some of, some of you might be like, well, the story that we just read in Mark, that doesn't happen. Jesus is still on the boat, and the sea's calm. But if you take a step back, and you look at the whole perspective of where Mark's going, that really what Jesus is ultimately doing in his entire life is everything is headed in Jesus' life to this ultimate storm on the cross. On the cross. Jesus endures The ultimate storm, the only ultimate storm that truly matters, that truly has capability of damning and destroying all of us. And the storm that ultimately is the worst of all storms is the storm that is caused by sin, ultimately leading to death. And what happens is on the cross, Jesus willfully, he's not forced into it, he willfully bows his head into that storm, embraces the storm in all of its fullness, so that those of us, like you and I, who are caught up daily in these little storms, can find rest, peace, and calm. That's what Mark wants us to know. So the point of the matter is, is that everything that Jesus is working towards is ultimately going towards a place where there is peace, where there is rest, and where there's a cessation from these storms. And the way that they came about was that Jesus himself entered in willingly into that ultimate storm of sin, destruction, ultimately death, so that all of us that are in these various storms throughout our lives can be free.
That's what Jesus has done for us. That's where all this is headed. So what this means, to the degree that you believe this and you, and tr- you trust this, you accept this, be the degree to which your own heart will be at rest in life's lesser storms. In other words, it allows you, once you are facing these day-to-day storms that everybody goes through, you can look at these storms in the face, even though they may be tough and difficult, you can know that God is greater than these storms, has more power than these storms, but unlike the storms, he has love. What are the storms you're facing today? What are they? What are the fears that you're facing today? What are the things that are controlling you today? What are the things that have literally overcome your soul to the point where you have no longer have control over them? They have complete control over you. I think what Jesus would say today is look to me. He's not going to coddle your disbelief. He'll rebuke your disbelief. He'll reorder your fears, and he'll point you back to the cross. That's what we need to see here today. So the storms that we face, the storms that we go through, our only safety is by entrusting us to the hands of God who's greater than the storms. Because the storms don't love us. The storms aren't personally looking out after us. The storms will crush us. But our Savior has been crushed for us so that we can endure. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what I hope you trust in today. I'm going to pray, and we're going to respond by singing. We're going to worship God. We'll respond by partaking of communion. We partake of communion because what we do when we partake of communion, we remind ourselves that when we eat the broken bread, when we dip it in the cup, we remember the fact that Jesus was bruised, crushed, and broken for us. He endured the greatest storm so that we who endure these lesser storms can actually endure them and ultimately have confidence that he's holding us. Just simply having a belief in the power of God separate from the fact of a God who loves you only leaves you terrified. That's all it does. If all you have is a perspective of God as being all-powerful, all-great, unmanageable, but you don't see him as loving, all that will do for you is terrify you. But if you see God only as being all-loving, but not all-powerful, then you see God as having good wishes, good desires, but no ability, no power to carry you through the storm. That doesn't help you either. But if you see a God who is all-powerful and both all-loving, and who's gone to such extremes the cross all for you and that's a god that you can entrust your life to that's a god that you can devote yourself to and you know that he will not crush you because he was crushed for you if any of you right now you know i just kind of feel like i need to do this you feel crushed you feel as if you've been challenged. There are things in your life right now that God's speaking to you on, fears that are controlling you, dictating to you what you should do, and you're not in control of those fears anymore. And today, you want to surrender your heart to Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe you're not a Christian, you've never done this before, and you want to do it for the first time. Maybe you are a Christian, and you've just been overtaken by these fears, and you want God to calm those fears by giving you a glimpse of his power and his love fresh today. If that's any of you, just stand up right where you're at. All I want to do is pray for you. Just stand up right where you're at. I know this is always tough. We always do this, and this is tough. It's, but again, you know what? Again, at the end of the day, man, we're, we're family here. We love you guys. That's all we are. We're just family. Thanks. It's tough. But at the end of the day, this is it's just a step. It's a small step, man. It's a small step. It's a small step of just acknowledging and recognizing and saying, yeah, that's me. It's in prayer struggling and fighting with these things. They're wrestling me. They're winning over me. They're conquering me. I don't, want to con- I don't want to be conquered by them, but I want him who conquered to conquer them by carrying me. Right on. Anybody else? Just stand right where you're at. So all we're going to do is pray for you. Nothing weird. We're going to lay hands on you and pray for you. That's it. Nothing weird is going to happen. We don't think.
just kidding. What we believe, what we trust will happen is that God will, God will take up just even more profound residence over those fears in your life and cast them out. By not casting them out without replacing himself, he'll replace himself in exchange for those fears. That's what we want to pray for. Anybody else? Stand up right where you're at. Okay, if you are sitting next to someone who's standing, would you, would you mind just kind of reaching out, laying hands on them? I want to pray over all of you guys. And uh, if you are laying hands on somebody, um, pray aloud over them right now. You can just do that right now, just before I begin to pray. Pray over them right now, and maybe God might give you something unique to pray over them that I'm not going to pray over them. Um, but just pray over them right now, and uh, make sure that they can hear you. And uh, God will direct you, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing, and uh, we'll partake of communion, we'll worship God, we'll confess sin, and uh, we'll just worship. So God, right now, I pray over each of these people here right now that have felt broken and felt in bondage to these fears and have been overtaken by these storms and they've been washed up and ruined. And God, we ask you, we believe you right now that you want to set them free. And God, that doesn't necessarily mean you completely take them out of the storms entirely, but it would mean that you have given them and will give them a greater confidence as they go through these storms that you are a God who is not only all-powerful, who is capable and able of delivering, but you are also a God who is full of great love and mercy and rejoicing over your people. God, that's what we need to know. We need to know that there is some semblance, not of manageability. We can't manage you, and that's what scares us. In the same way it scared the disciples. We are afraid when we cannot control things, when we cannot manage things. And so we will ultimately either be at the mercy of the storms or we will be at the mercy of God. And being at your mercy is far greater than being at the mercy of just merely an impersonal storm that does not love us. Being at the mercy of a God who loves us is actually life-giving and storm-calming. So, Father, I pray right now that you would just fall upon each of these people here and bring them rest, bring them calm, even in the midst of their storm by fixing their eyes on Jesus who endured the great storm for them on their behalf so that the little storms they go through can actually be endured joyfully. So we pray. So help us to worship you now, to sing to you now, to just relinquish our fears back to you before you confess sin. Jesus, just be glorified in the songs that we sing right now.